Hello, and welcome to the Property Solopreneur podcast, a show for property investors and developers who want to build and grow their own profitable businesses. I'm sharing with you my decades of property experience and interviewing many other successful property people who are happy to share their varied and priceless knowledge freely. Business doesn't need to be hard and nor do you need to be lucky. But as a certified strategist, I know you need a plan to work to. And a good start is by listening to other people's successes and failures. Why reinvent the wheel? This allows us to have a more in-depth knowledge of the wider property world. Well, Mark Ialton, welcome to the Property Solopreneur. And for those who've not yet met you, which actually there can't be many really now in the property world, who are you and what do you do? Wow. Well, thanks for having me on, Rachel. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So my name is Mark Ianson, and I call myself a property trainer and trader. So I'm based in the Midlands in North Warwickshire, and I've been doing this for a couple of decades now. And I wouldn't do anything else. I love it. I've done a few bits and pieces in my career, which I'll talk to you about later, but looking for deals, trading them out or trading them out to retail or trade them out to investors. If I can spot a gap in a property, I'll do it. Fantastic. Now, exactly straight away, I mean, trading out to unpack that, what does that mean? Right. So what's trade? Well, in, in the old days, we used to call it um, deal packaging. And, and people thought that was finding a deal and then selling it to an investor but that's that's actually quite hard work um because you've got to get, get a blooming great big bank of investors and a great big load of property and you've always got the wrong type of property for the wrong investor and stuff and then we thought well hang on so maybe we should split it down and, and then it became uh it kind of got called sourcing yeah sourcing was doing exactly that and then hang on well, i don't really just do that i do other stuff as well so trading is looking at a property right looking at a property and you can, there's two gaps. You can either go down in discount or you can go up in adding value or uh-huh. a mixture of the two. You could do both. It, I mean, if you're lucky enough, you can do both and they're both quite big. But as long as there's a gap in a deal, then you can trade it. Right. So the end result can be to retail. It can be to an SA operator. It can be to an investor. It can be a, a buy-to-let deal or a BMV deal or a, or a creative deal like a lease option or a uh, any absolutely anything, as long as there's a gap and the trader's making profit somewhere in the game, then we'll do a deal. Fantastic. And so that to me means that you're quite fluid. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. a rigid thing. And many people coming into the market now and they are talking about sourcing or being a deal finder and all those sorts of things, they do want nice little boxes into which everything, you know, this is what you have to do, this is how you do it. And that's not how it works really, is it? Because you never find the perfect deal, do you? No. Never. And uh, I must admit, I think there's two mindsets. There's the investor mindset, which is one side. And there's nothing wrong with that because I buy property yeah. and, and invest in it and put tenants in it and then rent it out and it lasts for ages and, and it's, it's you know, income forever because you get capital growth and you get, you know, rental profit. But that's the the, the investor mindset. If, you, if someone just does that, then they'll run out of money because they've got to come up with the deposits all the time or property is quite cash intensive. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So then there's another mindset, which is the trader mindset, which is I'll buy some and that's my personal stuff. And then I'll trade some and that's my income or that's more income or better income or. So yeah. So, so I think we've nowadays we've got to, because the market changes all the time and, and the government wants their kind of, you know, stash and, and the regulations get tighter in every industry across the world. So we've got to have two mindsets. One's the investor, which we're investing our money into, and the other one is trading, which we're bringing in income or profit or, or revenue. Absolutely. And 
And that goes, uh, you know, I'm always very suspicious when I hear someone at the front of the room go, well, I've never sold anything. Never sold anything. <laughs> Everything I've ever bought, I've kept. And yeah. I, I think either you've not been doing this long, so therefore you've not really had a chance to sell anything, or you haven't perhaps either run out of money, you don't realize how much more you can do if you have somebody else's money, or you haven't worked out that actually some of the things you've bought are lemons. You, ha- you haven't done the figures on them. Yep. Is that a right of assessment? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I sold a lemon last year. I, I oh, mean, did you? It, yeah, yeah. It's weird because a lot of people say, well, why don't you keep everything? And one, I can't buy everything I come across because that would be mental. And two, well, I had a four-bed house, a four-bed detached house with a garage, and it's it's only about five miles from where I am now. And I bought it 19 years ago. It's always been rented. It's always done its job. It's had two refurbs in its time. It needed a refurb kind of last year when we when we decided to get rid of it. But we thought, hang on, there was about 212000 I think, in that one. So it was, it was with a partner, so there was 106000 each in, in equity. And we thought, well, if we sell it, we can use the money more wisely now because we, we're known better. We can buy better now. And I don't buy four-bed houses with garages. I just it's, They just don't rent as well as, as little Victorian terraces or little... Uh, little flats they just it just didn't do it properly at all it did grow it did do its job it gave us profit as it should do it did what it's supposed to do on the tin but i can use the money more wisely than i could 19 years ago so we thought well now's the time to get rid of it so we got rid of it absolutely it got to its sell by date how did you because you're obviously extremely experienced now you weren't at the beginning how did you get started how did you even find the property thing because this was not a natural fit for you originally because i i know that you know you were mr roughy tufty in the army and all the rest of it um, a million miles away from floating around doing property how did you how did you morph into this yeah, that, it was a weird thing because I because I spent twelve years in the army and, and I must admit I loved it. It was brilliant. I had a brilliant time, and and I came out and I did a few job interviews and I wasn't very I suppose you call it streetwise. I suppose with interviews and I didn't know how to get a job. I didn't know how to put myself across in an interview and I ended up with a with a rubbish job and I had two thousand six hundred pounds to my name when I left the army and that paid for my first month's rental on a bed sit. We didn't call them HMOs back then, we used to call them bed sits. And so I had this bed sit, uh, a rubbish job, uh, and I thought, there's got to be more to life than this. I mean, I wasn't depressed. It's not a depressing story. It's just where no. I was, 28 yeah. years old, sat in this bed sit room. I thought, right, what do I do? I could do window cleaning, but I actually couldn't afford the ladders to start window cleaning around, <laughs> really. And then my friend said he was doing up property. Why don't you do up a house? And I thought, well, everyone makes money doing up houses. Let's do that. Because I'm, I'm pretty handy on the tools, being an ex-engineer. And so I bought this four-bed detached house, which I couldn't actually afford. But I thought if I did it up and then sold it, I'd make a chunk and then I'd go again. So I did the work myself. cost 64000 And when it was finished, it took me about 12 weeks to do the work. And when it was finished, the valuer came out to, you know, the estate agent comes around yep. and first time I'd met an estate agent and, and they said, we could probably get you 64 for this. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that's not quite what I had in mind. I was thinking of a bit of profit there because I've spent some money on it. No, yes. no that's the market, it's 64. So my first one was a complete disaster. I, I didn't make any money at all. Um, now, I got out of it because... I didn't sell it because it, I, mean, I was making a loss effectively. Um, but I was speaking to a, a sales lady from Barrett, and because I, I was looking around at houses and stuff, and and I was speaking to this sales lady, and she said, "If you uh, go up thirty percent, we'll buy it off you at full market value." And they didn't have any houses because that mean ninety because it was worth sixty four. I'd have to go up to ninety, and they didn't have any houses at ninety. And so she said, "We'll just buy two. <laughs> and I actually said, "I actually said this out loud." 
Why, who on earth's got two houses? Why would anybody want two houses? What's the point of having two? You can only live in one house. What's the point of having two? Anyway, this weird chat, which is just <laughs> showing my naivety at the time. Uh, and eventually I just said, yes, let's let's do it. And I lived in the, I had a three bed detached and a two bed terrace. And that was came to 90,000. And I rented out the two bed terrace uh, to a footballer at Darlington Football Club. And that's the first light bulb because that one cash flowed. And I thought, hang on. If I get a couple more of these, yeah. I, that'll actually bring me income in. That's better than refurbing because it's actually bringing me income. I'm not doing any work because he was a nice guy. He was a young lad. He played football every Saturday and went to the hospital to get his all his x-rays and stuff on a Monday morning. And he was just a nice guy. Oh, I, so I got another one two streets over. And I didn't know about discount or negotiating or creative stuff or anything like that. I just bought it at 45 grand, two-bed semi. And the chap that was selling it to me, he stayed with me as a tenant. So he, he stayed, I think he was with me about six years as a tenant. Um, so I got that one. And then I, I got more, not creative, but more adventurous, I think. And I bought a HMO. Like a, it was kind of an EastEnders house, one of these big Victorian things. Oh, yes. Uh, and I put eight tenants in it. And of course, that's you on the way, isn't it? Because you, eight tenants pays the bills, it pays the mortgage, it gives you a bit of a lifestyle, still working in, in a job. Uh, so I, I think I've made it now. But um, you know, at 29, 30 years old, like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur now. I'm, I'm doing it. So that's how, that's how it started. How it started. But how did you get from that, from buying direct from vet to vendor? Because that's where the real amazing deals are found, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're, you're known for that because. You know, you. I remember years ago, you used to come and talk at Bucks and I'd see you present elsewhere. And you would talk about the fact that you've got to listen to people. And that's how you find the property. Yeah, it, it started with, um, in the old days, no one ever speaks about this now, but it started in the old days with, the, the, there was no, there were no courses or, you know, books on property investing back then at all. And you used to get your information from the crusty old landlords in the pub. <laughs> and opposite my HMO, there's a pub called the Queen Vic. And in the Queen Vic, on a Thursday night, they all used to go in there for, a. I think it was 10 o'clock or half past 10, I can't remember when the last order was now, but it was half an hour before last orders. They'd have two pints of beer and they'd play a game of pool in the pool room. And so I used to tottle in there at Thursday night and there's five or six of them. And I'd come across deals um, because they tell me how to do it. Because what you used to do is you used to scour the probate, you know, the um, obituary notices yeah. in the newspaper. And then you'd take a postcard, write a postcard, and say, I'd like to do something with your house signed Mark and your number, and, and then you'd you'd post it through the, the door. And that's how we used to get deals. Direct to vendor from probate cases. Hopefully it'd come through the probate by the time you got it and stuff. You had to wait for that. And then you'd you'd get a deal from adult children who didn't want the property because they lived elsewhere and they weren't property people. They didn't know how to do it up. They didn't want to do it up. And there's this emotional thing. And so actually, so this was a really good training ground for you because when you started as well, it would have been the at the time of dial-up internet and all the rest. Oh of yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying attempt one of six, right? Okay. Yes, yeah, that's what it was like. Everything was very labour intensive, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And then you know, suddenly the life you know that we had the Berkshire suddenly started the whole networking thing, which both you and I joined enthusiastically. Yeah. And you know, how did you suddenly realise that? You had the ability to meet, to match all these different people up. You could talk to the vendors, uh, you could talk to investors, you could talk to the estate agents. Um, how did you suddenly realise you could do this? Because you then you then became very well known for this, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It's it's because I 
Well, the guys in the pub, I was actually giving them uh, my deals that I couldn't buy. Oh, right. And I never used to charge for them. I used to, because I couldn't buy them myself. I couldn't buy them all. And I'd come across them and there'd always be little tiny, you know, terraced houses that needed a bit of work or central heat and putting in or something like that. And I'd just give them away. And then one chap, and it was after a pint of beer, he said, why, why don't you charge? I would have given you 500 quid for this. And it, suddenly the light bulb just went on. It went, really? <laughs> would you? I'm leaving money on the table here. Yeah. So then I, I thought, well, so do you know any more people? And he said, well, if you contact the housing officer at the council, he'll put you in touch with the landlord groups. Um, right. Okay, I didn't even know these existed. And then, of course, networking started, and there's tons of landlords going to these talks and sitting yep. in I, I, I think my first Berkshire, I thought it was a bit of a cult. And I, and I was <laughs> stood in, you know, there's two rooms, wasn't there? There was a bigger room where the speakers were, and there was this kind of networking room. Yes. And I stood against one of the pillows, and I just looked, and I, I didn't speak to anybody. And I, I, it took me about an hour to drive down there and, and to drive back. And I didn't speak to anyone the whole evening. I just stood in that room and I thought, everyone knows each other. Everyone's talking to each other. And everyone's, oh my God, it's like, it is, it's like a cult. Yep. And, and I was driving back and my, my wife at the time, Deborah, said, what was your networking like? I said, oh, it was rubbish. Because <laughs> I never <laughs> talked talk to anybody. <laughs> but the, the second time we went, um, I, I, I had this introduction. I had a business card, I had an introduction, kind of a, you know, a 20 second thing. Hi, I'm Mark and I do deals. I, I, I didn't know what type of deals that, that everybody wanted then. Absolutely, but you did um, deals. Yeah, so you have to ask them and they'd say, well, I need some terrace houses. I need them in the Midlands. I need them Birmingham or Coventry or Nottingham, wherever they, they were investing. And I'd go on the hunt for them. So I'd put leaflets out and uh, bandit boards on lampposts looking for these vendors. And, and, and we started to match them up. I never had, and this is the weird thing about packaging deals, is you never have 10 investors and... 10 properties to sell them. No. You always have a bunch of complaints because you haven't got enough stock or you've got a, a bunch of vendors waiting that you can't sell. So they're moaning because you can't sell, the, you haven't got the right stock to sell to an investor and stuff. Now it's just, it's, it's almost a juggling act um, forever. It really is. You, you never have the right amount of stock for, for the people. But that's, but that's why most people give up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I get, I get this every day, even from my clients now, that are starting to do it. I've got three deals on the boil I've got them closed up. I've got them ready to present, but I've got, I haven't got any inquiries at all. And it's, you've got to build both sides of the business at the same time. Absolutely. And how do you go out and find people to believe in you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pitching everything. Because I, I did the, when I started on the networking, well, when I got over my initial shyness of just standing in the room, Yes. Um, I decided, well, if I'm going to go to these and I get five or six business cards, why don't I talk? Why don't I speak? And then collect all the cards in the room. And I think it was John Cox at uh, Books. Yep. Books Property Me. He put me on. And I got down there. And of course, Glenn Armstrong was in the audience and Rena Malron and all these oh, blooming yes. names were yes. in the audience. Oh, I just flapped. <laughs> just... <laughs> well, of course, I remember that extremely well. And, and that, I think, is what anyone who's not been in property long must realise is that everyone's got to do something for the first time. Yeah. And everyone, if you want to make a difference and you want to be able to sell the amount of stuff that you know you can, then you've got to do the stuff that's uncomfortable. And that yeah, yeah. stage wasn't your natural place to be. You were Not at all. confident and happy elsewhere. But it's got to be done. It's got to be done. Yeah, you have to do it. Yeah, you have to do it. Absolutely. Yes. And, and so 
One of the things, though, that you absolutely were known for, and I still send people to go and buy your book, which I know is still in print, at Dominate yeah. Your Brown Chaps. You all go and read it if you haven't. And that just it basically said what it meant on the tin, wasn't it? Know your area like the back of your hand. Yeah. And what does knowing your area like the back of your hand, how big does your area have to be and how well do you have to know it to be successful? Right. Well, I moved down from the northeast to the Midlands. So now I'm in North Warwickshire. And I live about five miles out of Nuneaton. And this is a good gauge for people starting out, I think, is I've got about 90,000 population. And if you divide the number of population you've got by three, you get this rough amount of stock or units or houses or whatever. So I've got about 30,000 houses. And then I've got another couple of towns kind of, uh, I've got Bedith, which is about five miles away. That's south. I think it's south. Then I've got Tamworth North. That's about seven miles away. Then I've got Hinkley, which is another small town. So I've got my 90,000 and I thought this this might do it. And it it does. I've been here 12 years now and I've not moved out of Nuneaton. For, I've never needed to go to Tamworth. I've never needed to go to Hinkley. I've done a couple in Bedworth because the, the, I can get some quite good deals there. But actually I've just stayed in Nuneaton. So if you've got about 90,000 population, divide that by three, 30,000 houses will give you enough to get going. Absolutely and, enough. And, and actually, you saying you've been there doing it for about 12 years and you're still doing it, that proves the point that actually things naturally turn over. So you don't exhaust your area. It's not like sort of no. breaking and pillaging. You don't sort of find you've destroyed your entire area. There's always going to be the next deal coming through. Yeah. And then you go in, you fight, you, um, you know, you've got your vendor. You go and talk to them in their houses, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what if I've done that, I have to say, I, I'm all admiring to you because I, I, how do you not get overwhelmed by some of the gloom stories? Well, I, tra I was actually on a viewing day with a, with a, a client, a one-to-one -one client of mine, and he's quite well-bred. He's quite, he's, he wants to get into property, but he's never really done it before. And he's a surveyor by trade and stuff. And, and I went on, I spent a whole day with him and he said, I can't believe how you talk to people. I said, what do you mean? And he, he said, well, you're just all free-flowing and natural and I said, well, they're just normal people. <laughs> they're, just, they're in a bit of a situation. And if I can get them out of it using the property as a vehicle, I'll get them out of it. And as long as I don't cause them any harm or I don't, you know, the first rule is don't put them in a worse place. Yep. So what I want to do is get them out of this thing. I've got to work out what sort of person they are. So I'll give you an example of a real deal It's because this is a nice one. So I met Paul and Sharon in West Bromwich, which is about 20 miles from me. Yep. They're, they're a working-class couple, they're middle-aged, and Sharon's mum's uh, died. It's a probate case. They've left it in the property in the will. They're not property people. They're not educated. They work in a spring factory. They haven't got a clue about property, and they've got this dump because, you know, it hasn't been refurbed in 20 or 30 years. And they've been, I think they were offered, well, they wanted 79 grand for it. That's that's the offer price. And it was a normal viewing. It was a normal estate agent viewing. Just the agent didn't turn up. Oh. Uh, so I've got these two in the living room. I've walked around it, had a look and thought, right, it's about a 10 grand reverb. It's nothing too bad. And they'd been offered 55 grand by one of these fast sale companies. And of course, they work for me because they, they mess it up every time. They just, they just go, well, I'll give you a low offer. Will you take it? And of course, everyone says no. And they think, well, this is a numbers game. I'll just carry on. And when I go to them, because I'm there... Yes. And seeing what what type of people they are. And I do ask the questions, why do you not do it up yourself? Yep. Well, we haven't got a clue how to do it. Well, I mean, if I showed you how to do it, would you be able to do it? No, well, no way. I haven't got any money. Oh, right. Okay. So if I can get you 79K for this, would you be happy? Well, he's smiling his head off because he's never seen 79 grand in his life. Absolutely. So he's buying bolts and cars and planes and all sorts. He, he's smiling away. 
uh, Sharon was a bit more skeptical and said, you mentioned the word creative. What, what do you mean? So, well, what I want to do is agree a strike price on the house, 79, which is what you want. Yep. I want to do the work on the property. I'll pay for the work so there's no cost to you. And then I'll sell it. I'll deal with the legals. I'll deal with all the all the gubbins in between. And then you get your 79 grand. And I never see your 79 grand. It's your money. It's always your money. I never see it. It comes from the lawyer. Yeah. And so she agreed. So we, we did the work on the property. It takes us about three weeks to do it. And I'll take on a specific property. I don't do, you know, um, subs- subsidence and yep. um, subsidence. I don't do roofs or anything, anything complicated. It's just refurbing. And when we finished the house, uh, I took Sharon round it. Paul wasn't there that day, but I took Sharon round it and she started to cry because she's never seen it look like that in 30 years. Yes. And, and that's a nice thing. It's a, and I'm not kidding. She was convinced that she owed me money. Yeah. I, I said, no, Sharon, you don't owe me any money. I, I said I'd pay for it. You, you're getting your 79. That was agreed. It's on paper. We've done a contract and it's, it's, all, it's always been your money. Yeah. And she said, but Mark, you've done so much work. No, I, I, I've just done what I said I'd do. Absolutely. This is what I do for a living. Yes, you make Yeah, quite, this is how you, we do it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, it's your 79. Uh, we, we, we sold out. We made a profit, of course we do, because that's why we do it. Yep. We pay for the refurb. I actually borrowed the eight and a half grand it took to do the refurb. Uh, so we paid them back, paid uh, Sharon and Paul their 79, and the people that have bought it, it's a young couple that have bought it, and they're still in it now, and they're happy. So everyone wins. Yes. Just a nice way to do it. And and also it is about listening to people. And I remember the first time I heard you talk about the fact that you, you have to prize out of some people just how much financial problem they are in because yeah. they they you know, they won't admit it. And it like is a problem. And I do remember I, I had I found a couple who had well, they were long term sick, but they still wanted a cruise every year. Because they were worth And consequently, yeah. they owned £5,000 on an £80,000 mortgage. That's all they owed. And they were being repossessed because they couldn't afford credit card and the mortgage, oh. which was absolutely frantic. But anyway, we got it sorted out, got it stopped, and it had all been, all been sold out. And it was a case, you know, I, I earned a few grand, quite happy about it. And it was because I was prepared to sit down and just ask the awkward questions, have a cup of tea. And that was the first time when I could hear your voice in my mind saying, it is about sitting down, sometimes drinking awful tea. Yeah. And just saying the rest of the morning, I'm just going to listen to these people. And being very upfront because we are a business and saying, I cannot, I, I can't guarantee I'm buying your house or I'm even doing business with you, but let's have a conversation. Yeah. And of course, you can then find out what it is you're going to be doing. Now, how do you sell to investors? If you're selling, that one was a really nice example of selling out through an estate agent and going through the normal route and everyone was happy. How do you find stuff and pass it on to investors? Is that a different style of work? Yeah, that's, that's completely different because there's a couple of uh, trip-ups in sourcing deals. and uh, One, you've got to get to know your investors reasonably well. So we've got to do the, I call it a 5WH. So I ask them all, like, what, when, where, who, why, how? So what are you buying? Where do you buy? Have you bought before? Have you got experience? Have you got your own brokers and lawyers and stuff? Or do you need to use ours? What type of property do you want? Do you want to do work on the property? Do you want to add value? Or So I do this whole questionnaire thing before I, I even entertain them. And if they say, I definitely want a two-bed in, uh, so quite often they ask for the Midlands or Birmingham or Nottingham, because they're, they're cities and they know them. And and I only sell deals in Nuneaton, really. <laughs> so, uh, they never really ask me for Nuneaton. They never say, can I have a two-bed in Nuneaton? They never do that. No. Um, but I, So I've got to sell the town into them as well, which is another sort of trip up. Because if I just go with what they want, a lot of people come to me and they've been told to do this. We call it... Um, 
sourcing to order, I think they used to call it. Oh, yes. Yep, never did yeah, that. That's the recipe for disaster, it really is. Because no matter what the investor says at the time that he's buying or she's buying, it's, your property that you find is never good enough. Yep. And they never actually end up buying anything. So it's it's just the weirdest thing. So the thing is, is you grab your stock together, get all of your, whether they're, I mean, there's, there's about six types of property to do. There's one bed flats, two bed flats, two bed terraces, three bed terraces, and three bed semi. So that's five types of property. Yep. If you go much above that, you're out of investor territory, really. Yeah. So we just look for these sort of typical investor stock properties and then we're a shop so we sell what we've got so then we're punting out to social media we might put a lead magnet out there which is just one page uh, you know an advert about a property keep it disguised because you don't want them knocking on the door and talking Absolutely, to everybody yes because that's a disaster and then when you get a, a lead in uh, a bite then we'll pitch them and we'll we'll go through the whole brochure we'll go through the whole town we'll go through the everything about the property the rentals the sales comparables the ad value if there's an ad value you know it's a refurb job or anything and we'll go through the whole lot with them on a zoom or on a phone call and then close them for some sort of commitment. So it could be a reservation fee or it could be the full fee, up to you what you say. But then once you've got some, uh, I call it pain money, once you've got some pain money in, that'll yep. keep them behaving during the deal. So you can get them in, then they can do a viewing and they can bring the you know the, the surveyor or the structural engineer, whatever they want to bring. And and they've got a couple of weeks to do that. So I'll And I'll go out with them. Yeah, one chap. I was. This is only in the last couple of weeks. He actually he bought the deal, so he paid three grand fee for the deal. It's just a little two bed terrace in the middle of town, and he actually came back and said, uh, "Mark, I've done my DD." I, I went, "Yeah," uh, and he said, "You're ten grand more expensive than my DD." I went, "Oh, really?" Uh, and I know I know the town pretty well. I know virtually every single house in the town, so <laughs> I thought I'm not sure I'll be ten grand. So where, how are you doing your, your how are you doing your DD then? He said, "Well." I was doing the sole comps and I can get one in the next street, 10 grand cheaper, so you're 10 grand more expensive. And what he didn't know, and this is why you should know your ground, is because the, the end of that street, it's Queen's Road and King Street. So I'm on King Street and I'm 10 grand more expensive than Queen's Road. Right, at the end of Queen's Road is a little car park and on a Sunday night, all the kids with the little one-litre cars and the raspy exhaust, they do wheel spins <laughs> and donuts on the car park. Of course, I mean, go buy no, that if you want to. Yeah, nobody would want to live there. Oh, Absolutely. dear me. Yeah, yeah. so, so th- and that's the idea about dominated ground is knowing the, knowing the stock on the ground because then you can counter those objections that come in that are completely, they're, they're nonsense, but they're in someone's head. And if they're in someone's head, it'll stop them buying a deal. Yeah. And then you've got to know about those in advance and, and be able to get over their objections. But it is also about you not having, if you know your ground, you're not wasting time, are you? Because yeah, exactly half, half the questions you need to ask, you already know the answer to. So it's about mm-hmm. knowing their situation rather than going, oh, what, how, how much would possibly it cost to do up this house? Because you already know. You already know, the, yeah. the presumably, even what the ceiling price in that street is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I've got. To, well, I'll send it to your to your listeners if they, if they request it. I did a video. I think it's on my YouTube channel where I go through nine box grid research, and all it is is three kind of standards of house. I call it, I call the the first one a grot box, which is that needs a reverb. It needs a bathroom, kitchen, decor, on carpets, and it needs doing. And that that's got one a certain price, and then a renter. Everything's there, and you could rent it, but it's a bit old fashioned. You know, it's got the the, the, the you know the uh, a purple bathroom suite or something but it's all there yes and then we've got a palace which is the top price of a certain type of house and a palace has got bread baking it's got the table set and it's all gorgeous and lovely and trendy and if you know 
the three different standards of of house and the prices on the on the particular patch, and you know it for all of the different types of house you might be trading. Because I only do two bed terraces, three bed terraces, and three bed semis. So I haven't got enough. We haven't got enough flats for me to trade flats, really. So I haven't got any. So I've got just got these small houses. And so if you if you pick three types of house that suit your area and your stock, and then go and examine them and examine the three levels of price, you've got yourself a bit of research there, which you'll. I mean, it does change. I mean, prices go up and down and stuff, but ballpark, you'll have an idea of what you should be paying for uh, one to vendors to do deals and one to sell out to give investors a bit of a deal as well. Absolutely. Do you find that the changes in the market really affect you? Because, of course, to many people, they've come into property and interest rates, well, of course they're low. That's what they should be, isn't it? Whereas <laughs> when. <laughs> Oh yeah. When you and I started, it, you know, we we were still we were paying more than we are now. Yeah. Do you when when there are these fluctuations, do you have to change what you do, or do you find sometimes you're absolutely deluged in work, and other times it's a little bit quieter? Yeah. When the um when the bills went up, you remember when, uh, it was about three or four months ago when the bills went up. Suddenly, I had no phone calls. <laughs> I, just, I didn't have any. I thought, hang on, we haven't got a business now. What's happened to the business? And I think it's because people, it happened in the crash as well in 2008. It happened then as well. We had about three months where people just, I couldn't get anyone to spend. Yeah. I just, and of course, when the, when the, when the property crashes, that's when you should be buying. Yep. But in reality, they don't. They keep their money in their pocket. I'm, and the typical excuse or reason is, I'm just waiting to see what the market does. Oh, yes. Well, hang on, we're at the bottom. Come on, we've crashed. Come on, this is when you should be buying because you buy at the bottom and then sell at the top. Why not buy now? Then oh, I'm just I'm just going to see if it goes down any further. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, but and that, to a certain degree, that is people not wanting to do the figure work either because there is a point at which you know you're making money and you just go. It doesn't matter how much more it drops now. That's just going to make my money be- go further. Yeah, yeah. Well, I need to bank that house. I need to get it earning for me. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think in property because it's quite an illiquid asset. You, you just don't go and buy one and you've got it. It takes a while to get into and out of. So you should. I, I mean, this is ideal world buy on the way down because you can't predict when the bottom is yeah. buy right at the bottom if you can and then buy on the way up again yes and then you've got you've, you've got a deal across the three but in reality i think because some investors because a lot of investors get stuck at three properties and that's that's kind yeah. of where their limit is that they just run out of money they're not thinking of that buying the way down and buy at the bottom and buying the way up they're just thinking about buying one yeah and they want to buy the best possible deal they possibly can and and i find that the it's weird when we have a crash or a, a downturn that's when lease options come out of the woodwork um, i mean they've always been around and uh, you know we've done them forever but in reality it happened in the last crash and it's happened in this one as well where uh, have you got any creative deals mark uh, uh, hang on you, you want last month you wanted a blooming buy to let a discount you want the cheapest price point now you want a lease option where have you learned this and they've been scouring over YouTube looking at creative deals. I've had one today, uh, a guy called Alan today. And he says, can you can you show me how to do this uh, creative stuff that you do? Uh, yeah, yes. well, I can. Yeah, yeah. And can you get me some deals? But also most, uh, you know, we talk about creative, most really useful and interesting and profitable deals are creative in some way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, otherwise, not always buying. Yeah, not always buying. But otherwise, we might just as well have every investor queuing around the block just to go to into an estate agent. I mean, I do remember buying my first buy to let, and it was those days when there was always a little red triangle on the corner of a, um, you know, the, the details of the window, and they said things like, you know, brilliant for first time buyers, yeah. investment property. Well, there investment was no difference. Property, yeah. 
There was no yeah. difference between first-time buyer and investment property or uh-uh. forever home. It's just that they needed to suck us all in to go and have a look because there was no industry around to sort of teach us. Now, I know you do webinars and things. What I sat in on one, and one, one thing amazed me was you had a, quite a large number of people. And I thought, but how many of these people are actually going to do anything? Do you know how many people do things? No, I, I actually, on I, I did, for about five years, I did a webinar every Tuesday night. And after a while, and I used to get about two or three inquiries a week um, for either for, for buying a deal or buying a property or for a bit of coaching because I wanted to do it themselves, which is fair enough. Yep. And and then the, the, the after about five years, the lead started to dry up. And I don't know why it's because I didn't increase the audience or it was just the same people coming on. But I thought, well, I'll stop them now because if the leads aren't coming, it's not making me any money. I'm just giving stuff away for free, right? So... I'll stop them. And then we st- we went to Facebook advertising. So now we do a bit of Facebook advertising. I think I've got about 50-odd leads that I'm dealing with now. And some of them are motivated sellers where they want to get rid of a property and some are coaching clients where they want a bit of learning and, and some are just deal clients where they want to buy a property and get started or or, or, or learn a bit about creative stuff and uh, and get doing. But it's hard to say which ones as a percentage, how many do, but on the, on the the certainly on the webinars, with about 110, 120 people a week, there was a... A, a very small percentage of them took it further. Very small percentage. And and perhaps that is because to a certain degree, when you talk it through, like we've done this afternoon, it all seems very obvious and very straightforward. And it's all about having a cup of tea and listening. I mean, we've all got those skills. But the reality is you've got to have 10 cups of tea. It's a numbers game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's one, I did this just at the beginning of the year, a, a chap, he wanted to be an investor, he wanted to buy deals. And he said, but before I do it, I've got to take the money out of this house that I've done. I've already done it. I've de- I'm a developer. And I thought, oh, a developer? Oh, oh that's because that's a, a different skill to me. I don't, I don't develop. Absolutely. Yes, they are yeah, different. So, yes. So, wow. I've got a developer as a client. Fantastic. Anyway, I, I said, what's the property? So I've been trying to sell it for ages. It was my mum's house. Mum passed away. It's a bungalow, and I've I've developed into the into the loft. And I went, oh, really, okay. And I, I and I went to see it. I went to do a viewing, and and I'm not kidding. What he'd done it's at two four nine. This thing was on the market. Been on the market trying to sell it for a year. And I've got two daughters. So my daughters were with me that day, and we went down to see this property. And Izzy, my eldest, said, "Dad, this is an old person street." And you can tell the old people street because they've all got block paved driveways. They've all got, you know, all the, the, the soffits are done and the drain pipes are all white and all this sort of stuff. And and it's and they've all got little shopping cars on the drive. So it's definitely an old person street. And he'd created a, a three-bed bungalow by going into the loft and created this massive ensuite bedroom in the loft. And he thought he'd added value. And in reality, every other house on the street is 249 same price, but it's a two-bed and old people bungalows are two beds, not three beds, because they want a couple living in one bedroom and then the grandkids can stay on a weekend or a guest or whatever. So that a two bed is perfect, but a three bed doesn't work. No. So the agent is showing around families. And of course, because fam- it's a family house and the families don't want to live in an old person's street. So he's got this, he's got no exit. He's got, I mean, it's a pointless exercise doing that. And I said to him, I said, Look, I'll tell you what, shall we get creative on your first deal, on your, on your deal you've done? <laughs> He said, yeah, what are you going to do to it? He said, well, if I can make a bit of profit on it, I'll sell it for you. I need to make a bit of profit. It doesn't have to be loads because you're going to become a client anyway. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I want to actually sell it so you've got some money so you can pay me. Yeah. And he went, all right, do that. And so what I did is I put a loft hatch in and I took the spiral staircase. He'd built this steel blooming thing by the door. I took that out and put it in the skip. And I, st- I put it back on the market as a two bed for 249 and we sold it. Oh, my word. For, so that was, completely proves the point, doesn't it? Yeah. They you, just do it wrong. Yeah. you <laughs> Doing something in a property does not mean it's worth more. In uh-uh. fact, you can completely devalue it. Yeah. 
So you've got to know who your end pass user is going to be and what your exits are going to be. Yeah. Because you can Exits are more important than the entry. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes. And and particularly if you are hoping to trade them out, you've got to know where you're going and what you're doing with it. But yeah. that is quite a story, isn't it? <laughs> it's not bad. And he's I, a client I, now. I mean, he became a client and, he, and he's doing deals and he's it, now doing them right, thank goodness. But Well, I was going to say that must have, uh, one, he must have been, you know, he must have taken his legs away, frankly, but, you know, saying, well, lovely what you've done, but it's in the wrong place for the wrong house. And yeah. you, you've not got it. You, you just, if you want to do this stuff, you're just going to have to park all your preconceived ideas. Which I think a lot of people have to do because they all have watched, you know, Homes Under the Hammer, which yeah. has to be the biggest work of fiction I've often seen. It's on odd. It's an odd program. I, I did, we did well. We did one as well. This was last last year's one of last year's deal. I didn't take this one on because it was it was too much work to do. But the chap was he thought he was developing. Well, he thought he was being quite clever because the three beds in the area were quite a lot higher priced than the two beds. And so he thought, I'll, t- I'll nick the bathroom and turn that into a bedroom. So I've got three beds and I'll put the bathroom downstairs. Well, now what he's done is created a three-bed family house, but the bathroom's on the end of the kitchen. And of course, which mum or dad bathing the kids wants to take the kids through the kitchen to the bath? They just yeah. don't want to do that. So that that was stuck for ages. I, I went to see that and he, he never became a client. It wasn't really a... It, I think the mindset was wrong at the time for him. He thought he'd done it quite right and... But he hadn't. He'd, he'd just messed his house up. I mean, that's just a mess. Yeah, up. My, mindset is really, really important, isn't it? And it is, uh, you know, it is knowing that what you're doing is right and you, and with proof. This is not just I've I've come up with a theory and, and everyone else is wrong. Even if you can see all around you that everyone else is doing it differently. But one of the things that you do have to do is go into houses on your own. You're a chap. You're you know you're well equipped to fight anyone off should you have to. What sort of precautions should someone do or or work with if they've never been in somebody else's home on their own and they suddenly think things aren't quite right? How do you keep yourself safe? Ah, uh, right. Well, golden rule is go during the day. Right. Yeah, you've got to go during the day. There's no. We're, we're in this to make money, not to get into trouble. So yeah, we, we don't. Go, and it's weird. I, I was actually it was on one of my webinars. There was a lady called Sarah. Who's actually she works for me now, and she used to sell these new houses, new developments and stuff in in the town. And she knows Camp Hill quite well. It's a part of Nuneaton. It's not a very nice part of Nuneaton. It's quite a, a kind of lower demographic area. And she said out loud in front of the webinar audience, she said, "Whatever you do, don't do deals in Camp Hill." And I thought, well, I, I do laugh my deals in Camp Hill. <laughs> I actually work the area because people do buy houses there. It, it, yeah. isn't, it isn't plush, but I do do deals there. Now, it, if I go down to Camp Hill, one, I've got a couple of cars, so I don't take a posh car because there's no point. You're going to get it scratched at some point because the, the roads are quite narrow. We, you know, they're parked on either side. They're quite tight and, and, and they don't care quite as much uh, of their things because they're cheaper, I guess. And then the second thing is go during the day because if you go during the day, it's normal people at, at normal home. Times, yeah. You know, there's no sort of weirdness and, and the darkness, it's a, it's a weird thing. You, you, feel, you do feel safer during the day. I mean, the normal precautions apply as well. Tell somebody where you're going, give them a phone number, have an emergency uh, contact, give them a call when you're there to say you're all right. And, yep. Or if you're not all right, have a code word that you can ring them up and uh, you know, have them on your speed dial and stuff. But I must say, touch wood, I've never had a, I've had a couple of odd meetings with a couple of odd people, but I've never had one that I thought I shouldn't be here. I mean, I've gone suited and booted, and I've gone in the. I, I thought I'm overdressed here because I'm the wrong. They think I'm the enemy, which is yep. that's not worked in my favour. And I've had. I mean, I've had burgers from the burger van with families at nine, ten o'clock at night because it's there. That's how they 
you know, feed. So I've, you kind of join in and you've done it. So I've had a couple of odd, I've had a lady that sat, uh, this was a weird one. There was a lady and a mum and we were sat at the kitchen table and you know when someone's sat too close to you and they're kind of in your space. Well, the, yes. the daughter, it's well, an adult un- daughter. It's slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. She, well, her, her leg was touching my leg from my bum to my knee. <gasps> and oh. I, I could I could almost feel her breathing on my leg. And it was the weirdest, <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. But uh, it happens. It, yeah, it's just, it's the oddities of human beings, I think. It's the oddities. Yep. But I've never had a meet where I felt I shouldn't be here and I'm unsafe. Because we're dealing with homeowners. They're generally, they've got jobs. They're not... Um, you know they're not the normal people in society they may not be educated or they may be going through a bit of a crisis but they're not horrible people really and i no, i can't say i always make sure that i am sitting nearest the door oh good yeah good tip yeah sitting near the door so you can get out because i in a previous existence i had worked with families who occasionally somebody else from the family would come home and go who's she she's got to go and you know i open my yeah. mouth and the punish of plums falls out well that was you know like paper um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you're in the wrong environment, aren't you? You know, you're in it, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So I always make sure that I'm sitting nearest the door so that I can whiz out. Yeah. And I I do find it slightly odd when people lock the door behind me, but usually there will be another door through a kitchen or something that you can go into the garden and shout or whatever. So yeah, check your exits. Check your exits and making sure that you are safe is always a good thing. But Mark, thank you for coming to talk to us today because clearly this is a very successful way of earning money through property because you've been doing it since God was a boy. Yeah, yeah, quite a long time. And you're still doing it. And no matter what the market does, you can just adapt. You you can always, yeah, you can always pivot. We're not in the market long enough to be affected by a drop or a, a rise particularly. There's a couple of times where I've been in a rise and I've caught the rise and that's been really good. But as, as far as a drop, the drop doesn't happen fast enough to affect us. Right. So as long as you got your numbers right and you can find a gap, so there's a gap either down from discount or up from value add, you can do a deal. And you can, you can do a deal with anything in any market. Oh, what a wonderful statement to our, uh, you know, end our, our podcast episode on. Well, that that's a quote of the year, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Property Solopreneur with me, Rachel Troughton. If you've enjoyed this episode, do hit subscribe and kindly leave a review and share this podcast with anyone you think it would help on their property journey. If you'd like to get hold of my guide for building a successful property business, go to racheltroughton.com forward slash checklist. We only live one life. So let's get your dream a reality through building a profitable property business.